privilege to read scripture with you. I'm going to read Acts 18, verse 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, greatly helped those through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thank you, Sue. Have a seat. Turn to Acts chapter 18. This past week, I received constructive criticism from my daughter, Ellie. And here's the constructive criticism so that you can all sympathize with her. Uh, she's 16 now and uh, has got two more years of high school left after this one. And she said, Dad, finish the book of Acts before I graduate, I beg you. <laughs> I don't think that's exactly what she said, but speed up was the general term that I, the general sentiment I took away from that. You know, you need to, you need to speed up. Acts is, you know, come on. Anyway, so uh, you can all thank her for that later. Um, next week, we're going to do Acts 19 through 27, so... <laughs> One sermon, fire hose. When I was a younger man, uh, I was introduced to a Christian band. Uh, some of you might know this band, some of you may not know this band, but the name of the band was called Big Tent Revival. And uh, if you don't know them, that's fine. It was, I don't think they were super popular or anything. Anyway, they're older now. This is what they look like. They look like a bunch of middle-aged men like me. But uh, they used to be younger and had hair and and long hair even, and uh, were kind of wacky. Anyway, in 1998, they put together an album called Amplifier, and that album lived up to its name. Uh, I went to see them in concert at Indiana Wesleyan in Marion, Ohio. Marion, Ohio. Marion, Indiana. I went and saw them in concert, and um, after the first three songs, I thought I was going to have to leave because I thought I was going to suffer permanent hearing loss. But then they turned down the amplifier a little bit, and I was fine after that. But I, that's the only concert I've ever been to it that I've said to myself, I, I gotta leave this room. It's too loud in here. But uh, anyway, it was great, and we had a good time. Anyway, uh, this, this album came out before Apple Music or Spotify or whatever you kids are listening to today. So you had to actually go buy the compact disc that came in a jewel case, and on the jewel case, on the back, it gave you a list of the songs that were on the CD. I know, this is old technology, but follow with me. This album rewarded you if you listened to the whole thing because about, I don't know, three to five minutes after the last song, there were bonus tracks. I know. You can't get that on Spotify, kids. Anyway, so about three to five minutes after the last song on the album, if you just left it in your CD player and let it play, uh, you'd, you'd get a little greeting from the band followed by three extra songs. One of those songs was called Rivalry. That was the name of the song, Rivalry. And the lyrics, I hate to read song lyrics, it's so cheesy, but they fit, so I'm going to read them. The song, lyrics started, the song started like this. 
I just saw jars of clay tonight. You're going to love this rhyming. I just saw jars of clay tonight. It was an awesome show, and they were out of sight. I know, it's just profound. This is the, this is the part that I want to get to. But a friend of mine who is short on love said they didn't talk about Jesus enough. And then the chorus goes like this. We're all God's children. We're all God's kids. Love each other like Jesus said. There's one thing I can't see. Tell me why there's got to be rivalry. The point of the song is that uh, the point of the song is that it's easy and kind of normal for us to pick on others that, that aren't exactly like us or don't do things the same way we would whatever. Don't satisfy our preferences or what we think ought to be the way things get done. There's something about us as people that's, that's very highly messed up. I know we're all fallen because of sin, but there's a particular way that we express that sin in our lives, and it goes something like this. When someone or a group of people come into our lives that are highly intelligent or talented or skilled, they oftentimes can represent a threat to us, we think, or if they've got slightly different ideas about how things should be done, they could threaten the way things have always been threaten our tradition, threaten whatever, our way of doing things. And we tend, when that happens, to react poorly. In our text today, we're going to see someone come on the scene who is immensely talented, the text makes it clear, but flawed, as we all are. And you're going to see how the early church reacts to this person, and it stands, I believe, in stark contrast to the way the rest of the world reacts to a person such as this. I'm going to try to flesh that out for you. And it should. The church of Jesus Christ, we are part of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God should operate differently than the kingdom of this earth. It should operate with a different value system and a different way of doing things than the kingdom of this earth. This is an example, I think this text is an example to us of how we ought to operate, but it's so easy and tempting to fall into the world's way of doing things. So let's get into the text. The big question we're going to answer today is, how does Acts 18 show us some ways the church can separate itself from the world? How can we be different? How can we be set apart? How can we be, dare I say it, sanctified, right? How can we be different? We're called to be different. But today, we're going to see a very practical way or ways that we can do that. And I'm going to tackle this in a series of three questions. And the first question is this. How, what is your reaction to capability? What is your reaction to capability? Look at verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. If you read further on, a little bit further on in the Bible, you're going to find out that Paul, this is in that time where Paul went back home to pay a, a visit to the church in Antioch, and he's not yet back in Ephesus. He's already, he was in Ephesus briefly. He's gone. Priscilla and Aquila are still there. Paul's not back yet. 
And so in this intervening time, this guy shows up on, this, on the scene. His name is Apollos, which is probably an abbreviation of his full name, which is probably Apollonius. That's probably his full name. But uh, in the Bible, he's referred to as Apollos. And there's some interesting things about him. He's Jewish, but he's got a Greek name. He's Jewish, but he's not from Israel. He's from Egypt. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. And so, first of all, that, you know, to a purist, maybe that doesn't sit so well. A Jewish guy with a Greek name, a Jewish guy that didn't grow up in Israel, grew up in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is a great city, was a great city. There was a great big library there. It was a center of knowledge and learning. Uh, some of the early church fathers that we read about in the early stages of church history are from Alexandria. So it's no slouch. But uh, again, you've got this guy and he's kind of a mixed bag. He's a Jew with a Greek name and he's a Jew that didn't grow up in Israel. He's part of the dispersion, right? It also says that he, the text also says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had a firm grasp on the Old Testament. He was a knowledgeable man, probably also an articulate, well-spoken man. Powerhouse. That's what I think of when I think of Apollos. He's a powerhouse, and he comes rolling into Ephesus. Now, in the world that we live in, again, I'm, I'm trying to draw a contrast today between what we see in this text and what we see in the world around us even today and in, in, in ancient times as well. Do we, t we tend to view someone who is highly capable as either an asset or a threat, right? There's really no middle ground here. They're either an asset and they're going to get on board with us and we're going to partner together and we're going to do great things or they are a threat, I, I put together a couple video clips for today, and here's a video clip from an ancient movie way back from the 80s called Big with Tom Hanks. Check out the reaction when uh, this, this man arrives for his first day of work. the new guy shows up. He's good looking. He's young, younger, whatever. And he starts in his new data entry job and everybody around him, well, at least the, the next door cubicle guy views him as a threat. You're working too hard. You're working too fast. You're going to get us all fired. Now, I don't know if you've ever met a guy like this, but I've met at least one guy in my life. He happened to be a tradesman. He worked mostly in tile, tile work. And, um, he got let go from his job because he worked too fast. Now, he worked for the government, so that...
But his, his supervisor, the constant refrain, this is what he told me. I don't know if it's true. I wasn't there. But what he told me was the constant refrain from his boss was, gear down. You're going too fast. You're making us all look bad. Slow it down. He was a highly capable guy. And uh, he, he ended up having to search for a different job because working for, it was Purdue University, state job, uh, working for Purdue University, his kind of hard work ethic did not fit in the culture. There's other places that we can think of that in the Bible, for example, where the reaction to capability wasn't good. David, when David came on the scene to replace King Saul, King Saul had been anointed king of Israel. He was a handsome man, a tall man, a head higher than most of the men in Israel, or all of the men in Israel, tall. And uh, But he lost favor with God, and so God anointed you know, through Samuel, anointed David to be king of Israel. And that began a rivalry that ended with, really, Saul, uh, it progressed to Saul trying to hunt David down as an enemy. We see this portrayed oftentimes in our world today. For example, uh, I'm going to ask you a test question. If you get this right, you need to come to trivia tonight because you're going to clean up, okay? Who was the first, we're starting the 2024 presidential cycle, who was the first Democrat to declare that they're running for president? Don't know, do you? Does anybody know? No, Marianne Williams. Marianne Williams was, did you get it? Tom Carroll, come to trivia tonight, you're going to clean up. Marianne Williams was the first Democrat. Now, why didn't we hear about that? because she represents a threat. She's articulate, she's got good ideas, she's run before, and in the last presidential cycle when she ran, she made it all the way to the debate stage. In other words, uh, when presidential candidates run, for, run they, uh, sometimes they, they don't survive long enough to get onto the debate stage with the other Democrats to, to do their thing. She made it to the debate stage. She's got good ideas, she's well-learned. The conspiracy theorists out there among us are saying that the media is not promoting her they're not talking about her because they don't want to they don't want her to represent a threat because she is a threat to the biden administration right who last time i checked the biden administration's plan for the primaries was to 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 have no debates they're just going to keep the president locked away and have no primary debates because they think that's how they're going to win the primaries now listen I'm not picking on Democrats. I think Republicans do the same thing. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just simply saying, in the world that we live in, in our typical fleshly lifestyle on this earth, our typical sinful manner, is to treat someone who is highly capable as a threat, right? To push them away, to make them go away, to belittle them or castigate them, whatever, get them out of here because we're afraid of what might happen. The same thing happened to Jesus, incidentally. How did the world react to Jesus? Well, when he was obscure, nobody talked about him, right? He wasn't on the scene yet. He wasn't rocking the boat. But boy, as soon as he came on the scene, as soon as he rose to fame, as soon as they were drawing, the the people's attention were drawn away from their typical Jewish leadership to this obscure rabbi named Jesus, then they went after him. Take your Bibles just for a second and turn over to John chapter 8, just so we can have a a flavoring of this, right? John chapter 8. 
in here, and you can read it for yourself, Jesus and these religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, have a long back and forth, right? Where they're kind of debating theological things and whatever. Look at verse uh, John chapter, I, I read a lot more in the first service, but John chapter 8, verse 39, it says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told, the, told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father, i.e. the devil, did. Then they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And then Jesus goes on to speak to them. The point, the point that I'm trying to make here is that as Jesus rose to prominence and began, began to be viewed as a threat to the Jewish religious leaders, the attacks became personal. The intent became to kill him, and the attacks became personal, like we were not born of sexual immorality, which was probably the rumor around Jesus was that he was an illegitimate son Joseph, or illegitimate son of Mary, maybe not Joseph, didn't know. What is your reaction to capability? Let's contrast that. We're going to see in this text today that instead of viewing Apollos, who's this guy who's a Jew with a Greek name, who's a Jew that didn't grow up in Israel, who's powerful in the scriptures and articulate, that the early church chose not to view him as a threat, but instead viewed him as an asset and, and actually helped empower him into ministry. It's quite a stark difference. So keep that in mind. The second question that we could talk, talk about today is what's your reaction to ignorance? Look at verses 25 and 26. Again, I just want to say this for the record. Being ignorant is, is not the same thing as being, I'm going to use the S word, stupid. Being ignorant just means you don't know something, right? You're, you lack understanding in some matter, lack information, okay? It's not being a fool, it's just being lacking the information. Look at what verse 25 says. <clears throat> he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, let me just stop right there and say, scholars disagree on what that means because the word for fervent in spirit, meaning he was a real go-getter, or fervent in spirit, meaning fervent in the Holy Spirit, is the same word, is the same, would be the same phrase. Some scholars speculate that he wasn't saved, that Apollos was not yet saved. I can't find any data to suggest that. Uh, it says that he had been instructed the way of the Lord. Presumably, he was a believer. He was fervent in spirit. I think it's safe to say he was a real go-getter. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What is your reaction to ignorance? Apollos was this great man, an articulate man, but he was lacking. He had only, remember, there's no New Testament yet. He was lacking in certain areas, and one of the areas that he was lacking in was he only was familiar with the baptism of John, not with the baptism of Jesus. So 
he needed someone to kind of come alongside of him and fill him in. Now, do we deal with ignorance by tearing the person down because of their ignorance or building them up? I'm going to say a name. You're going to know, some of you that are older in the room are going to know this name. There's one word that's associated with this person's name. So when I say the person's name, I want you to tell me what word is associated with their name. Dan Quayle. Potato. Bingo. You got it. Now, why is Dan Quayle's name associated with potato? I'm using this as an example. Dan Quayle, way back in the days of yore, was the vice president of the United States. And, by all accounts, a decent human being, right? I don't know the man personally. He's from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. I don't know everybody from Indiana. But Dan Quayle was the vice president of the United States. And the reason that you know the word potato is because one time he was doing some sort of publicity thing where he was at a school and he was moderating some sort of a spelling contest, spelling bee, whatever. And the young man at the chalkboard, when he was told to write the word potato, he wrote it correctly, spelled it correctly. Potato ends in an O. And Dan Quayle said, son, you forgot the E. I think there was a little bit of back and forth between the child and, and Vice President Quayle, probably feeling the pressure of the fact that I'm talking to the Vice President of the United States. The young man then wrote an E at the end of potato. Dan Quayle, good job, and has never lived that down. Now, we chuckle about this. We chuckle about this. Let me ask you this question. Was any of the U.S. foreign policy affected by the fact that Dan Quayle thought potato was spelled with an E? No. Were there any national security secrets gained or lost because Dan Quayle misspelled potato? No. I'm, I don't know, I, I didn't go back and research Dan Quayle's life, but I'm imagining that Dan Quayle, just like many politicians, started at the local level by perhaps figuring that there was something wrong at his local school, so he put him, you know, he got elected to the school board, ran for it, got elected to the school board, or the, to be a county commissioner or a city council member or something like that, and someone recognized some talent in this guy, and so maybe then he worked his way up to the local level, the state level, and then, and then the national level, and then finally, the pinnacle of his career, the vice presidency of the United States of America. To my knowledge, not a lot of scandals surrounding this guy, And we, we tossed him to the side because of potato. We're crazy. We're insane people. But for weeks, months, years, the, the media just whipped Dan Quayle. Potato, 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 potato. So that decades later, in 2023, at Delaware Bible Church in Delaware, Ohio, your pastor can say Dan Quayle, and the audience can respond, Potato. We're idiots for behaving this way. This is a decent man. This is the way of the world. It happens all the time. 
By the way, it, what is our mandate as Christians when it comes to our political leaders? What is our mandate? What, what's one of the things that we're supposed to do for our political leaders? Anybody know? First Timothy 2, pray for them, right? To make prayers and supplications and thanksgivings like, Lord, thank you for President Biden. Thank you for Nancy Pelosi. And thank you for Jim Jordan. And thank you. Thank These people have difficult jobs. These people uh, need you in their lives, you know, every, each and every one of them. We are to pray for them. And yet, if we're not careful, we can slip into the ways of the world and just become cynical and complaining about all of it. How did the Jewish leaders react when Jesus failed in their eyes to keep the Jewish law or customs? I mean, how many times was Jesus, you know, he's walking along the road with his disciples. They're plucking heads of grain to eat because they're hungry. And it happened to be on the Sabbath day. And aha, you are violating the Sabbath. How many times discussions did they have about washing this or, or fasting about that or whatever? This just happened over and over again. Never was there a good it seemed like with the with the with the exception of like nicodemus and a few others there was never a desire to sit down with jesus on the part of these religious leaders these jewish religious leaders and have a good faith conversation about what does the bible say who are you why are you here rivalry But notice what goes on with Priscilla and Aquila back in Acts chapter 18. It's a stark contrast. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. How beautiful is that? They didn't stand up in the assembly and say, you're dumb. Sit down, you don't know what you're talking about. They simply waited for him to be done speaking. They took him aside and they filled him in. There's other examples of this in scripture right uh, the way that we're supposed to treat each other regarding sin Matthew 18 15 if your brother sins against you go tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained your brother how God wants us to tackle uh, a situation where someone has sinned against us perhaps they are blind to it or perhaps whatever, for whatever reason uh, it, it hasn't hit them that they have sinned you're supposed to go to them alone Tell them, give them a chance to turn around, to repent. It's a beautiful thing, right? When, when Nathan, when David, in 2 Samuel 12, David had committed all this sin, you know, he had, had adultery with Bathsheba, he murdered Uriah the Hittite, and all this corrupt stuff that David was involved in. Nathan didn't write an article in the Jerusalem, you know, post, the Jerusalem Times, and say, scandal hits the palace, you know, uh, anonymous sources say that, you know, anonymous sources close to the king say that he's done all this kind of stuff. No, he goes to David. God sent him. He goes to David and he simply lays out 
the problem and gives David an opportunity, and David wisely takes the opportunity to repent. In the Old Testament book of Proverbs, there's four different types of people that are described in the book of Proverbs. The simple, the fool, the mocker, and the wise. The simple person is not a bad person. The simple person is a person who just lacks instruction, who just needs more information, needs more encouragement, perhaps. And in this case, there's certain areas about doctrine, theology, life, that Apollos is just simple. So what, how does Priscilla and Aquila react to that? They instruct him. It's simple and yet incredibly important. We don't mock people when they, don't, when they get things wrong. We come alongside them and help equip them. Now listen, I, I just want to say this. It can be tempting for us as Delaware Bible Church sometimes, I think, to look around the landscape of the church and say, yeah, you know, we're Delaware Bible Church. We know the Bible. Our pastor preaches for 45 minutes. Yeah, I know, your guy preaches for 10 minutes. 45. Yes, I fall asleep for half of it, but 30 minutes, 45 minutes, man, that's where it's at. And we can become haughty and, and a little bit, you know, especially as we look around at other churches and we see people that we know from other churches that maybe aren't fully filled in, fully up to speed on doctrine. And so we can tend to, if we're not careful, cop an attitude about that instead of being like Priscilla and Aquila and coming alongside and helping to fill them in. How else does the simple become wise? You have to instruct them. And I would say it's more than just instruction. You have to live out what you know to be true in front of them. Not just tell them what's true, say, do as I say, not as I do, but do as I say and as I do. What is your reaction to ignorance? It's important. At the men's retreat last weekend, we had a, a fellow by the name of Brian Solomon come and speak to us, and it was great. He's a missionary to politicians. And uh, I know, yeoman's work. Does a lot of work in the State House here in Ohio and also in D.C. I, got a, I was privileged to be able to talk with him on the phone because I wanted to pick his brain this past week. And he said, you know, Scott, I, and I'm paraphrasing heavily here, but he said, you know, Scott, sitting around and complaining about our leaders is not doing anything. When we should be on our knees praying for our leaders and doing what he's trying to do, doing what others are trying to do, and trying to minister the word of God to them and to help them understand uh, what their job is from God's perspective. He says, I work very hard not to be cynical about our leaders not to be someone with a sharp tongue towards them, not to complain about them, but instead to try to build them up and pray for them. There's a lesson to be learned there. Last question. How do you react to ambition? Look at verses 27, 28. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ 
was Jesus. Now those la that, that last phrase there, showing that the Christ was Jesus, that phrase shows up earlier in the book of Acts pertaining to what Paul was doing. Paul was trying to show others that the Messiah, the Christ, was Jesus. He was trying to show them through the scriptures that that was true and to reason with them. And so you can see that Apollos is just really carrying on the work that the early church was already doing. It doesn't say he became a one-man show. It says that when he, when he showed up in Achaia, he helped those who through grace had believed. Now, just to give you a little bit of geography lesson here, just remember, Achaia is the region where Corinth is the capital. So he's crossing over the sea from where he's at in Ephesus to Achaia, and he's going to start witnessing there. Now, what do we do? What's your reaction to ambition? Is it to subvert it or to harness it? To try to, you know, try to let the air out of somebody's ambition, to deflate it, to make it go away, or to harness it? It seems like in the world that we live in today, the people that are, the people that really are trying to be ambitiously working towards a good goal for other people, that those people are oftentimes the subject of attack. Now, this is not a perfect human being. There, are, there is no such thing as a perfect human being. But the one that came to mind as I was working through this, in the non-Christian world anyway, is Elon Musk. Now, listen, I just want to say something. I love you all. I do. And I think you're all great. We don't have an Elon Musk in this congregation, right? He's weird, right? Uh, we don't have somebody that, you know, just for example, 10 years ago when I looked out into the parking lot, there was no electric cars to drop kids off for school. Now there's several coming in every day, right? This, this guy has started, uh, has worked with SpaceX, Tesla. I mean, you see Neuralink, Starlink, recently brought Twitter. I wonder if he's regretting that decision. Um, the Boring Company, I don't even know if you know what that is, but look it up, it's pretty cool. And then he also has a charitable foundation. Uh, he, he's pretty ambitious, right? Has visions about, uh, you know, getting, the, getting people to Mars. He's got visions of, of connecting the whole world with internet through Starlink. One could argue he has ambitions to make sure that the United States remains a country that has freedom of speech by his acquisition of Twitter and the Twitter files that's been released and all this kinds of stuff. He's a very ambitious guy, yet viciously attacked on a daily basis. Viciously attacked. People questioning his motives, people saying you're just in it for the profit. And he is, you know, he, he, it does take money for his projects to flow. But I, I saw an interview with him one time, and it really struck me, and so I, I, I captured a clip of it. I'll show it to you now. And this has specifically to do with SpaceX. So watch this. People who've been in the rocketry business for decades yeah. who say about you that you don't know what you don't know. Well, I, I suppose that's true of anyone. How can anyone know what they don't know? <laughs> but when um, critics say you can't do this, your answer to them is, we've done it. He's done it in partnership with NASA, which has given SpaceX technical advice and a contract worth up to $1.6 billion, mostly for 12 cargo flights to the space station. 
But SpaceX's lack of experience bothers some NASA legends, like Apollo astronauts Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan. They've testified to Congress that the Obama administration's drive to commercialize space could compromise safety and eventually cost the taxpayers. Now is the time to overrule this administration's pledge to mediocrity. You know, there are American heroes who don't like this idea. Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan have both testified against commercial spaceflight in the way that you're developing it, and I wonder what you think of that. I was very sad to see that, uh, because those guys are, yeah, you know, th those guys are heroes of mine, so it's really tough. You know, I, I wish they would come and visit and, and see the hardware that we're doing here, and, and I think that would change their mind. They inspired you to do this, didn't they? Yes. And to see them casting stones in your direction. It's difficult. Did you expect them to cheer you on? So they're hoping they would. What are you trying to prove to them? What I'm trying to do is, is to make a, a significant difference in, in spaceflight and, and, and help make spaceflight accessible to, to almost anyone. And I, I, I would uh, hope for as much support in that direction as we, as we can receive. Yeah, and that was years ago. And think about all of the different attacks that have come since then for a guy who just a few days ago, by the way, launched a rocket called, uh, it was a test of the rocket Starship, which is, for all of you space nerds out there like me, twice as powerful in thrust as the Saturn V rocket, which sent the astronauts to the moon. I mean, it's an enormous undertaking that this guy and his company are doing. And yet, in the midst of all this, constantly under attack. I just want you to imagine with me for a minute. And then I'll talk about more religious, <laughs> more Christian examples. But imagine if we all just recognized the talent in this man, right? And we all kind of unleashed him to do some good things. Not, not without question and not without accountability, but to, to unleash him to do some good things and didn't stand in his way at all, at every turn. What would, what would be different? This is kind of the way we are. We see somebody that comes along that they have ambition to go do something and we try to let the air out of it. We try to subvert it. We try to throw roadblocks in the way because it represents, again, a threat to us or what we've always known to be true or whatever. I'm going to say something, and I, it's probably going to sting a little bit, but it, it probably should. Sometimes I get the feeling that uh, the last thing that, that Christians want to hear from their children is, I'm going to be a missionary, and I'm moving to Africa. I want to spread the gospel. I want to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to let everyone know that I come into contact with as I am doing here, that Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins so that we have the opportunity to walk in the newness of life and have a restored relationship with God. I want to spread that message even to the depths of Africa. And for oftentimes, that, that can sound to some as misplaced ambition. And perhaps to Priscilla and Aquila or to the early church, it can sound like 
Apollos is getting a little bit too big for his britches and wanting to go across the sea and spread the gospel in Achaia. But that wasn't their reaction. Their reaction was they encouraged him and they wrote him letters to let the folks over there know that he has the endorsement of the church in Ephesus or the believers in Ephesus. They, wrote, they encouraged him and wrote him letters. And let me tell you, that was the right response. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I got to say this before I wrap this up. Of all the institutions that exist out in the world today, the Church of Jesus Christ may well, well be the last institution remaining that has an, an aspirational message for our young people. In other words, that, that though you were born in sin, right, that you can trust Christ as your Savior from sin, you can uh, adopt His way of life as your own, and you will be empowered by God to grow and change, become more like Him, you can get on board with his mission to publish the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And when you die, you'll be with him forever in glory. This is an aspirational message at a time when all of the messages that are coming towards our kids are, well, you, you know, you may be depressed, you may be suicidal, you may be, you know, the economy stinks, you're not going to be as rich as your parents were, you know, all these messages coming at our kids about their sexuality and all these kinds of things, just being forced at our kids, these, these messages that are just designed to cause fear and anxiety in their lives, and we have one of the few messages that, that says God loves you, and he wants to use you for his glory and for your good, and we need to encourage our young people. This is a wonderful message. This is a wonderful life that they get to live in Christ. We need to recognize their talent and fan it into flame like Priscilla and Aquila do with uh, Apollos to, to help them to dream big about how God can use them and their particular gift set in this world for, to do great things. But again, the world doesn't always operate that way. And the Jewish religious leaders followed Paul, right? When he, when he became a threat to their way, when he became viewed to them as an ambitious guy, he, they followed him from city to city trying to stir up trouble against him, to stir up the leaders of the city to make false claims against him and try to shut him down. Now, there's a counterbalance to this, right? I mean, in the book of 1 Timothy, it talks about the qualifications for elders, and you don't want to put somebody into Christian service who's a newbie, who's a novice, right, who just came to Christ recently. But the point is, is that the normal flow, the normal flow of the church is to be, of the church should be, to help people come into a relationship with Christ, to disciple them and equip them, and then to send them out, using their gifts and talents and encouraging them to go and do great things. Now, back to rivalry. And I just want to put an exclamation point on this before we, before we depart. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where Paul articulates the works of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. Right before he articulates the fruits of the Holy Spirit, he articulates the works of the flesh. And here they are. 
The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, jealousy. Uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and rivalry is one of them. We have an opportunity to be so very different from the world. And one of the ways that we do that is by not viewing each other each other's ideas each other's talents each other's abilities as a threat to the way things have always been the way things have always been done or to our whatever power structure hierarchy whatever whatever but to view them as a gift of God a recipient of the grace of God as we have been a recipient of the grace of God and to help to, to put that talent, to put those, those thoughts into action for the constructive growth and the forwarding of the kingdom. Philippians chapter 2, let's end here. In Philippians chapter 2, you know these words, but it's a good reminder as we leave. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, If there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to talk about that you should have among yourselves the mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say how he did that. Though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant and obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's some good meet in this passage today so the question was the big question today was how can we be set apart how can we be different than the world and here's the answer acts 18 shows the church shows us that the church can be different from the world by recognizing capability gently teaching the ignorant and encouraging ambition when it's directed in god's direction right to encourage ambition so the application really couldn't be more simple. Easy to say, hard to live out, which is this. How do you treat believers who are gifted, perhaps more gifted than yourself? Do you try to subvert them or do you try to encourage them? How do you treat believers who are ignorant, who need instruction? Do you belittle them and chuckle under your breath at, at how little they know and how much they have to learn? Or do you roll up your sleeves and say, God has been so gracious to me to teach me these things. I'm going to be gracious and teach these things to others. And then how do you treat believers who are ambitious? Who really, you know, it's that person in the church that, that comes and says, uh, we got to get more aggressive with our gospel efforts. Amen, amen, amen. Or do you say, 
you know, there's a subcommittee meeting coming up, and if we can get it passed through the, the three hurdles of, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry, then perhaps we can, after those guys approve it, then we can take it and we can be better. We should be better. Father, we need your help. We understand a little bit better today our tendency to be negative. And especially to be negative to those that are perhaps new, perhaps unfamiliar to us, perhaps are missing some information. Father, this example of how Priscilla and Aquila and the early church treated Apollos is vital for our understanding today. So will you please, in your grace, your mercy, help us to become more like Priscilla and Aquila and the early church in how they treated Apollos, to be gentle, encouraging, loving, upbuilding, constructive for your glory to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.